I just thought it would be useful to give you just a little sense of uh, what anthropology is like in Australia because it really does feed into uh, the, the theoretical concepts I'm going to put forward today. So Australian anthropology it very much derives from an English heritage because of our colonial history. And the first anthropology department was founded in 1925 by Radcliffe Brown at the University of Sydney. So in his establishment of anthropology in Australia, he really did draw quite sharp divisions between biological and social anthropology. So as a social anthropologist in Australia, you will be trained in quite discrete departments. And in fact, there's only one department, which is at the Australian National University, where you can actually be trained in more of a sort of a four-fields American-style anthropology. So I think that is significant to know sort of what, what my, my background is, what my training is. But having said that, as an anthropologist, one of my first jobs post-PhD was a, a lectureship in public health, and I thought that I'd been thrown to the wolves a little bit. Um, I got very excited about uh, when epidemiologists, it was a very clinically epidemiological focus, public health department, they started talking about surveillance. And I thought, fantastic, they know about Foucault. Isn't that great? I've been right at home here. But of course, you know, the, the, the language and the meanings attached to that language are really quite different. And so even words like, when I started to look at maternal obesity, words like environment mean one thing to me, but to people working in maternal obesity field actually mean the intrauterine environment. So very, very different concepts. So I learnt very quickly, I think, about the, the different language, different meanings, and very clear divides, epistemological divides, political agendas, uh, working between different departments of psychiatry, public health and anthropology. And in many ways, I think it's almost like working in Bourdieu's fields. Uh, because the fields are spaces of legitimacy for, um, for knowledge and the struggles and conflicts between those particular fields. So what I want to do today is I'll just show you my, I, I call it an itinerary or a roadmap. It's a little bit like jumping in a car with me and I'll, I'll hopefully take you somewhere to a destination. But I want to talk about the limits, what I'll see as the limits of, of critical fat studies. And this is partly because of what I call the ghosts of biology. And for some of you, I think I might be preaching to the converted because you are working within a biocultural paradigm. But certainly I want to talk about most of the social constructionist literature around obesity, which does have this ghost of biology pointing it. Then I want to look at the theoretical imports of material feminisms through the nature culture model and use this really to reappraise obesity science through ideas of relational biology. So it is rather a theoretical paper rather than based on my ethnographic work because it is more about conceptual, conceptualising this, this thing called obesity. So I want to start with a, with a, a story. And in, in 2010 I went to a, a symposium at an English university which was um, it's called the Intergenerational and Familial Influences on Obesity and Related Conditions. And it was organised by the Biosocial Society and the Society for the Study of Human Biology. And the majority of presenters at this symposium were invited from an international field of, of prominent international science researchers, so mainly from epidemiology, paediatrics, public health 
and evolutionary anthropology. And all of these people had used fetal origins in early life as a focus in large population studies to explore the life course and intergenerational determinants and effects of obesity. So some of you probably know that fetal origins and life course and epigenetic perspectives are the most prominent in the scientific obesity research agenda at the moment. There were also sports scientists at this symposium who were reporting on physical activity and a handful of social scientists, including myself, who were providing contextual sociocultural perspectives and critiques of media and policy representations of obesity. So the aims of the symposium were to provide an interdisciplinary platform for obesity studies and to put forward a biosocial perspective on obesity. There's much, much more common for obesity conferences to be sharply divided along disciplinary allegiances, allegiance lines of social or biological approaches. And so I really applaud the ways in which opportunities for open dialogue across these epistemological boundaries were supported and provided by the organisers of the conference. However, most of the papers presented an encapsulated disciplinary perspective that was firmly embedded in either a biological or a social frame. So biological realities measured by BMI or other physiological indicators or discursive critiques that, that use social constructivist language to problematise the very category of obesity itself. And this separation of biological reality from discursive language was most glaringly displayed in a question which was posed to the final presenters of the symposium. And the final talk was, was given by two academics who are well known for their use of critical social theory to unpack taken for granted assumptions of obesity discourse. And they gave a very insightful critique of the UK Labour government's flagship anti-obesity campaign which was launched in 2008 in May and the Change for Life campaign. Using post-structuralist framing, the premise of their critique was that obesity is a product of language and has its own reality only in language. And a question came from a biologist in the audience who had presented work on the intergenerational components of early life under nutrition leading to later obesity and other health consequences among male women in Mexico. And her research focused on the effects of nutritional transition, in particular the consumption of traditional foods to westernised fast foods that are high in energy but nutritionally poor. And she had examined along with the legacy of poverty and poor social conditions how these changes in nutrition had increased the risk for overweight and associated diseases, stunting and overall impaired growth. This, this is uh, Emma's work, Emma's glass um, silver. Now Emma herself uh, says that she's not a tall woman, and um, I'll be making a guess here. She probably stands at 150, 160 centimetres. So you can see um, the other woman how, how, how short she actually is. And the inner training is, is clearly in human biology. And in a, in a baffled tone, she put up her hand and asked the presenters if they really believed that obesity was not real. There was a pause and a reply that defended the discursive construction of bodies and how they preferred, and I quote, not to approach obesity in those terms. And another question followed from the, the, the same person from Innes. And she asked, how would you then explain the extra burden on the National Health Service that all the obesity-related conditions are causing? And the presenters replied, 
that there was no solid evidence that, that this is really happening. And there were no more questions from the audience. And this brief interchange between presenters and an audience member, which was really a, a seemingly minor interchange in the two-day symposium, illuminated a crucial impasse between fundamentally different and opposing understandings of obesity. And this impasse sits on an ontological and epistemological divide between the materiality of obese bodies and the discursive construction of morally flawed bodies between nature and culture. And it was this pivotal moment that led me to reflect on the ways in which many social scientists approach obesity. And I take this moment as a recurring theme in my presentation in order to analyse dominant cultural and feminist discourses on obese bodies and point to the limits of such discursive critiques. Like Nick Crosley, I, ask you, I, I, I argue that obesity, and I quote, is an excellent case study for thinking about the interaction of biological and social processes as it demonstrates the complex interplay of biology, agency and, so, and society. But almost a decade later, so Crosley was, was uh, making that statement in 2004, his call to examine the interrelationship has not been picked up by critical fat studies and is even rejected as hostile. My argument addresses this call and I suggest that the material turn feminist theory provides the analytical space and tools for rethinking how critical fat scholars might approach obesity and how productive relationships from biological perspectives might be developed. So the first part of my paper examines the central tropes of my critique in obesity studies. And not surprisingly, as many of you are probably aware, the field of fat studies has grown enormously, sorry to use a pun, in the last decade. And as Wright and Harwood note, there is no singular position. It's a highly politicised field. Feminist scholarship has been particularly vocal about the medicalisation of fat bodies and overlaps with fat studies, the health at every size movement, critical dietetics, cultural studies, queer studies, anthropology and sociology, physical education and social geography. And within these disciplines there are complementary and conflicting viewpoints. These critical analyses have and continue to be important to debates about obesity discourses. But despite their critiques, I argue that there are, there are limits to social constructive stances as they privilege the social and negate the materiality of bodies. So what if critical fat scholars were, as Alamo and Heckman asked, to take the body seriously? So key to my analysis is the recent theorising on material feminism, which, and I quote from the authors of this book, emerges from corporal feminism, environmental feminism and science studies. It's important to, to highlight that new material feminism um, or new materialism, as it's sometimes called, shouldn't, shouldn't be confused or conflated with Marxist perspectives. It is, it is different. And so Marxist perspectives are concerned with women's material living conditions, so labour and reproduction, political access, health, education, intimacy, all of which are structured through class and race, ethnicity, age, nation, heteronormativity and so on. New material feminists aim to broaden the scope and I quote from the authors, the editors of this book, material, specifically the materiality of the human body and the natural world, into the forefront of feminist theory and practice. It thus brings ontology rather than epistemology centre stage in an attempt to register the inextricable entwining of biology and culture in the reality of matter, space and time. 
So material feminism doesn't abandon the lessons learnt in the linguistic chain, and I really emphasise this uh, in my presentation, but argues for a redefinition of how we come to understand relationships between the natural and the social. So in terms of eating, it asks us to think beyond the separation of two cultures. As Patricia Cotty, Cotty says in our quote, of the post-swallowing world of biology, physiology, biochemistry and metabolism, and the pre-swallowing world of culture, society, meaning and sensory experience, and move towards a being in each other. The example from the symposium that I've just given exemplifies the very familiar position that critical fact studies scholars take in obesity debates. Critical fact studies consistently present arguments that are in opposition to or sceptical of pervasive and dominant biomedical explanations. So key writers are, are people like Paul Campos, Garden Wright, Sadie and Wiley, and they've all led sustained critiques of the moral panic associated with the obesity epidemic and crisis, and particularly concerned about the you know, the, the morally laden and anxiety in terms of things like words like epidemic and crisis. And they claim that the so-called obesity epidemic remains a highly contested scientific and social fact. This work does remain foundational, is foundational to current socio-cultural analyses of large bodies, in which the medical and scientific facts and truths of obesity science are rightly scrutinised. So I'm not saying we shouldn't scrutinise them, of course we should. The territorial reclaiming of fact studies is in direct opposition to the clinical term of obesity and is a political attempt to question and destabilise the popular and powerful language and knowledge that is associated with weight. So Gard notes that words such as myth, truth and more extremely lies and liars are part of an ideological package that is taken for granted within many post-structuralist discussions of obesity. The language of obesity itself is routinely problematised by the use of single quotes. And probably in your own reading, if you're interested in this field, you'll, you'll notice these, um, the ways in which words are problematised through the use of single quotes. And a preference for the alternative word fact is used in an attempt to reclaim bodies from pathological medical gazes. So in tandem with this body of literature are the fat acceptance, fat activism and health at every size movement. I love this picture, actually, because I'm so impressed because I could never do that. <laughs> um, which presents an alternative approach to the direct correspondence made between ill health and weight. And their aim is to highlight the social injustices that accompany weight stigmatisation and in doing so move away from what they see as narrow biomedical discourses to broader health promotion ideals. In taking Susie Orbach's mantra of fat is a feminist issue, and attempting to destigmatise body size, these social movements emphasise diversity of bodies through size acceptance, fat acceptance, fat liberation and fat politics. And the political force of this anti-obesity campaign is exemplified in Rothblum and Solovey's recent 2009 Fat Studies Reader, where readers are incited to join what they call the revolution against the medicalisation of fatness. It's not my objective to provide an overview of this literature because other people have done that beautifully, so people like Charlotte Cooper, for example. But what I, what I want to highlight is a common thread of the literature, the use of Foucauldian discursive analyses to demonstrate how culture inscribes bodies. 
So these, these have been and will continue to, to provide powerful deconstructive analyses of interconnections between power, knowledge, language and subjectivities, and how obese bodies are discursively implicated in such regimes. However, I have become increasingly dissatisfied, um, having worked in this area for a number of years now. I've become dissatisfied with the limits, or in Donna Haraway's terms, the stalemate of this approach. An exclusive and negative focus on textual, discursive and linguistic frames excludes corporeal practice and biological substance from consideration. So social constructionists are writing of bodies, but the materiality of bodies has been ignored, resisted or forgotten. So how can these analyses explain the relationship between bodies and obesity-related conditions, such as diabetes and heart disease? How can you understand the fraught standpoint expressed by some feminist scholars who's, who critique the discursive language of obesity, yet grapple with their own experience of fatness. There's quite a number of scholars, people like Samantha Murray and Robin Longhurst, who have taken very post-structuralist perspectives on obesity in their own writings, deconstructing the language and pathologisation of obesity, but are beginning to start to write about their own everyday modern experiences of being obese themselves. So if you celebrate the fatness of bodies, do you ignore the poverty that underpins and contributes to poor nutrition? I should say in respect to, to Murray and Longhurst's work, they have written about both gastric bandings, and Murray's had gastric banding, and Robin Longhurst has been on um, quite a significant diet, so they, they do write about, about this. In critiquing obesity science, the scientists and, scientists and clinicians that are talked about, but really too, are known only through textual readings and are represented as a homogenous group who wield hegemonic power. Holmes and, and et al. refer to obesity science as a state apparatus within fascist structures. I do think this is rather at the extreme end of the social constructionist perspective in which its hegemonic norms have instituted, and I quote, a hidden political agenda in the name of truth. And in this article, which I would all encourage you to read, and I'm absolutely fascinated how it um, came to be in this journal of evidence-based based healthcare, that you know, they're, they're providing a sustained critique of, of the Cochrane collaboration, and so describing people who, who are involved in obesity science as fascists, and this is, this is actually Archie Cochrane, who the collaboration is named after. Um, he's a medical doctor and epidemiologist. And here he is actually fighting against the fascists in 1936. Having read this article, I then also came across, this is actually written about in um, Ben Golding's um, column, Bad Science. So, uh, it's been picked up elsewhere, but I would really encourage you to have a look at the original paper and then read some of the commentary on that. So what this paper does, it, it, it's as a socially constructed thing, obesity is not real and is thus put forward as a fiction. And this is a classic example of, of what Bruno Latour calls the fairy position as opposed to the fact position. And there's, there's very little acknowledgement, what's more, of the different conflicting and competing knowledges that occur within and between geneticists epigeneticists, epidemiologists, clinicians, and biomedical scientists. 
So this approach, this kind of approach, I suggest, makes it impossible for feminists and social scientists to engage with medicine and science in innovative, productive or affirmative ways. And the only path available is the well-worn path of critique. I'm not alone in my view that social constructionist analyses of obesity are painfully limited by constant reference to the body as a textual, linguistical, discursive device. Elspeth Proben agrees, and in a polemic paper, she suggests that current feminist analyses of obesity are a quite extraordinary thing because they rely on a simplistically vague notion of representation that only addresses body image. Nick Crossley also argues that sociological approaches to obesity, and I'm quoting that length actually because I think this really captures, captures the limits, too often opt for the construction's path, effectively retreating from important debates and conceding the ground of substantive issues to other sciences. We cease to attempt to explain phenomena, opting rather to deconstruct the attempts of others, thereby underselling the explanatory potential of our own discipline and marginalising ourselves. Material feminists, feminists like Eleanor and Heckman note that it's ironic that whilst there has been a tremendous outpouring of scholarship on the body in the last 20 years, that nearly all work in this area has been confined to analysis, analyses of discourses about the body. The next section explores why engagements with matter have been forgotten. So this is the, the ghosts of biology. So one reason why critical fat analyses of obese bodies are limited is because of the major source of academic division between the, the binary categories of nature and culture. And like many social scientists engaged in explorations of, of gender, sexuality, race or ethnicity, I have been immersed in a landscape of linguistic deconstruction and trained to be suspicious of cultural apparatuses that are imbued with unequal power relations. Within feminist critique, the category of woman is haunted by its conflation with nature and biology. This is, I was at the European Anthropology Conference in Paris in July, and I just happened to see this um, spray painted against a wall. So this, the, the, the association of nature and biology has become a cultural repository of the primordial, of unruly passion, primitive deficiency in the dark continent. The nature in its singular definition is thus a potent ideological mode that is treacherous terrain for feminism. And as a constructed category, nature is very much part of the grand narrative that is axiomatically tainted with essentialism, reductionism, and stasis. So in both these, these images, either being tethered to the, the domestic space or um, being tethered to biological essentialist ideas about being crazy or mad, as one example, is what uh, feminists have tried to disentangle themselves from. That this is an explanation for women's you know, high emotional, uh, greater propensity for illness, things like hysteria, for example, classic examples. So feminists like Simone de Beauvoir, Sherry Wharton, and Monique Witty have persuasively argued that such Cartesian logic should be distanced from as much as possible by taking refuge within culture, discourse, and language. And this move to non-naturalising arguments really effectively disentangled the category of woman from the conservative grounds of nature to a rational and active realm of culture, and it's been an underpinning theoretical trope of gender studies and feminist scholarship ever since, so very much since the 1970s. 
Also to suggest and I quote that without question, the early detachment of feminism from biological data and theories was a brilliant, indispensable political gesture. And the same could be argued of the social constructionist literature in obesity and fat studies. However, this overwhelming flight from biology and nature has become restrictive for a number of reasons. In this constant contestation of biology and cries of biological essentialism, social constructionist positions have failed to acknowledge the biological reality of bodies. And social analyses of the body concede no place for nature at all. And as a result, the biological forces that change, transform, constantly renew themselves and remodel themselves in interaction with the world have been denied. Nature itself has been bracketed, and in doing so, Nancy Twyner argues that feminist theorists, and I quote, have been, have been irresponsible in leaving in place a fixed, essential material basis for human nature, a basis which renders biological determinism meaningful. Elizabeth Cross suggests that there is a certain absurdity in objecting to the, to the notion of nature or biology itself, if this is even a part of what we are and always will be. If we are our biologies, then we need a complex and subtle account of that biology if it is to be able to more adequately explain the rich variability of social, cultural and political life. And this doesn't mean, and I am labouring this point, doesn't mean suddenly abandoning the critique and lessons would merge from the linguistic term, from post-structuralism <coughs> and so on, but to recognise the limits of these positions with res respect to a reappraisal of the intersections of nature and culture. In many ways, the continued hostility towards the negation of biology is surprising. As, as some decades ago, it was recognised that new technologies demanded new theoretical models which have attempted to reinsert a biological body into the anthropology of the body through biocultural approaches, or indeed question the Eurocentric division of nature and culture, as Marilyn Strathurin has so famously done. Across the social sciences, theoretical inroads have broadened their understanding of new reproductive technologies, genomics, and biological experiences of, of affect and emotions. So it is rather surprising that there's still this sort of um, stance. Not all feminist scholars, however, agree with the claim that feminism and feminist theory and, and critical social theory has been biophobic and fiercely anti-biologist. Writing in 2008, Sarah Ahmed criticises new material feminists, and in particular the edited volume which I showed you, for what she terms their false and reductive history of feminist engagement with biology and science. And Ahmed argues that material feminists do not provide sufficient evidence that feminist theory is anti-biological, and reminds readers of the history of feminist scholarship on biology and science that's seen in the work of John Haraway, Keller, Martin, Harding, and Franklin, to name a few. In responding to Ahmed, Myra Heard suggests that these examples focus on epistemic cultures, gender relations and changing orders that build and rebuild the fabric of gendered scientific and technological analyses, thus demonstrating the force of social constructionism and discourse analysis. Later examples that Ahmed uses are best characterised as critiquing science and turn out not to engage with science at all in the sense that matter and culture are kept separate. All of these examples cited by Ahmed reproduce the primary tenets of social constructivism as they suggest that biology and nature are different and incomprehensible outside of a culturally-based knowledge theory. As Davis notes, Ahmed unintentionally provides supporting evidence for the arguments of material feminism. 
So despite these important debates about nature and biology, feminist and sociological inquiry, anthropological inquiry, few feminist or cultural study, studies analyses have deeply considered the implications of biology beyond critique, language or representation for obesity or fat studies. Unith and Kuma and Sarah Tremaine's edited volume does ex examine the ways in which biology works within and through cultural understandings of the reproductive body to provide new analytic insights into fatness. Like Ahmed, they cite writers such as Donna Haraway, and Neil Martin, Sarah Faithfull, and Marilyn Strathairn to show that this is, is not a new theoretical concern. However, most of the chapters in, in their volume do maintain a division between the biological and social, thus keeping difference between concepts rather than as an internal ingredient. My own chapter in this volume, for example, discusses the language and representations used by Australian women to characterise their large bodies, which is at variance with the clinical characterisations of obesity. And in my chapter, I go on to describe the ways in which women draw upon certain maternal representations of their body, explicitly drawing on constructions of nature, to legitimise their body size, to show how ideas of nature are used in everyday discourses of fatness. So this is about the body as socially and experientially constituted, not as matter, as physiologically, biochemically or microbiologically constituted. So in this final section of the paper, I return to the symposium example from the introduction to demonstrate how we can bring the materials into obesity scholarship without losing the insights of social constructionism. So key papers at the Intergenerational and Familial Influences on Obesity and Related Conditions Symposium used Barker's hypothesis, which is also known as the Fetal Origins Hypothesis as their basis. Barker's hypothesis has been embraced in reproductive medicine and guides multi-million dollar research programs and government policies from New Zealand, the Biggins Institute, to the UK, across, across the world. And it's, it is prominent in obesity science and has gained ground with the emergence of the field of epigenetics. And I do apologise for people who are very well versed in the, in the science of, um, of Barker's work, but if, if you don't know about it, I think it is important to, to have that sense of, of um, what his hypothesis was. So I've just got a couple of paragraphs to, to describe that. So in the, in the 1980s, UK epidemiologist and physician David Barker and his, his team of um, researchers advanced the theory that chronic disease originated, at least in part, in the womb. And Barker's central argument was that adverse conditions early in development, and particularly during intrauterine life, could result in permanent changes to a baby's physiology and metabolism. And it was suggested that the fetus makes physiological adaptation in response to its environment to prepare itself for postnatal life. This process was known or described as fetal programming, and it increases propensity to disease in adulthood, and most notably cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And a particular relevance to the Barker hypothesis was poor maternal nutrition before and during pregnancy, which was said to contribute to reduce fetal growth low birth weight and development of chronic conditions later in life. I should say that in 1986 when Barker published his work that he himself was called a heretic and he, there was a lot of resistance um, to this hypothesis. 
In the early 2000s, however, the idea that prenatal overnutrition rather than undernutrition might affect lifelong risk of obesity gained traction. And so by this time, by 2000, Barker had, had sorted through some of those conflicts in the science community, so his hypothesis actually was firmly established by this time, so they started to look uh, at overnutrition as well as undernutrition. And so it became called a paradigmatic new frontier that was mobilised to explain the relationship between grandmothers, mothers and fetuses and the transmission of obesity through generations. My first reaction to Barker's hypothesis was one of what Squire calls knee-jerk constructivism. And I, you know, I had no problem in admitting this. When I first heard about it, I thought that words such as programming and imprinting, that they really did send my, my biologically determinist and essentialist alarm bells ringing. And I balked at the idea that biology had the power to explain social factors. And the belief that the life course and biological destiny of an individual is fixed and immutable because of their mothers and their grandmothers diet concerned me greatly. But rather than dismiss Barker's work, you know, um, if this was the if this was the case, how you know, how am I going to engage with this work? So rather than dismiss it and take that classic constructivist line and just critique it, I went and talked to people who worked in this area. So I didn't rely on second-hand accounts. I went and read Barker's work. And I, dis I discussed his work with social epidemiologists and scientists working in the field. And I learned that his early work in the north of England and Wales was not essentialist in its scope and was not biological determinism, as I had initially assumed. His, his early work focused on the gendered socioeconomic effects of maternal undernutrition pregnancy. And Barker argued that these associations were related to inequalities of health, and specifically to poor nutrition and the health of mothers. And his work throughout the 90s looked more closely at the life course of individuals rather than comparisons between regions, regions of towns. So he was also interested in spatial locations. And he continued to draw attention to geographical and socioeconomic constraints on the health of women and their children. And Barker's still alive, and he, he still takes that, that premise. He still sees this is related very much to inequalities in the world. So Barker argued that ill health is an issue of social and economic inequality, and he continues to advocate for the protection of, of the nutrition and health of girls and young women. So rather than reductionist, Barker's hypothesis actually allows for complex explanations of obesity which span biology, gender relations, place and social class that occur across time through the life course and across generations and in specific spatial locations. I should add that the uptake of Barker's work has, has also been interpreted in a variety of ways within the scientific world. So some of that... Um, his early work around inequalities, gender inequities and so forth, has actually been lost. So one of the classic um, uses of Barker's hypothesis hypotheses is to argue that all young women um, going through adolescence are, you know, have the potential to be gastric banded in terms of the um, propensity for obesity to be transmitted. Again, a rather extreme version. 
So in Martha's hypothesis, food is a bridge or pathway that makes the uterus a social space, not just a biological space. In critical periods of development, the body goes through, I'm quoting from Lander Ecker here, goes through periods of plasticity and openness to the environment. So if we think about this hypothesis in the context of the Mayan research that was introduced at the beginning of this paper, we can understand how Mayan bodies embody and reproduce a legacy of social, economic and political oppression, poverty and shifts from traditional foods to fast foods in a period of nutritional transition. Mexico rivals the US as the highest per capita consumer of soft drinks in the world. And Coke has, Coca-Cola has key symbolic value in the community through fast food commodity status and provision of household items such as furniture. So they're really embedding themselves in people's everyday worlds. It's in this historical and economic context that women who suffered from malnutrition during their own growth periods tend to end up with shorter stature in adult life and tend to give birth to small babies who are at high risk for overweight and other diseases later in life. Health status amongst Indigenous Australians provides another case for integrating biological and social explanations for health inequality. By examining how we embody or incorporate biologically the material and social worlds in which we live. Many studies have highlighted how colonisation and dispossession have led to Indigenous disadvantage, reduced health status and shorter life expectancy. So we know from studies that Indigenous Australians are dying 20 years below that of other Australians, which is just outrageous. So relative to other Australians, Indigenous Australians suffer disproportionately with chronic disease such as cardiovascular disease, renal disease and diabetes. And high rates of renal disease in some remote communities are caused by a range of factors, including geographical isolation, poor access to nutritious foods and high costs of fresh foods, which have to be um, freighted in, either on barges or, or huge semi trailers. Poor maternal diets result in underweight babies who are born into and grow up in environments that are impoverished. <coughs> the number of nephrons that you are born with, and nephrons are vital to filtering blood in the kidneys, peaks at 36 weeks in gestation. So nephrogenesis is complete before birth and is strongly correlated with interuterine nutrition and birth weight. And nephron numbers are reduced through maternal undernutrition and this in part explains the high incidence of renal disease amongst Indigenous Australians in the Northern Territory. Of course it only explains in part because you need to take consideration of the broader context. So in addressing higher rates of renal disease, the community-led Strong Women, Strong Babies, Strong Culture program, which began in 1993 in three Northern Territory, what we call top-end Australian Aboriginal communities, has helped to increase the birth weight of babies. And this program explicitly works on the premise of Barker's hypothesis. Improving socio-cultural contexts of women's lives and health through improved nutrition. So we, we in the um, evaluation of these programs, we're yet to see what the intergenerational effects are. I could end there, but in many ways I think this explanation is too easy. Because I'm interested in the, these conceptual theoretical categories of nature and culture, I think it's too easy to drift back into the core categories of nature and culture. Material feminism asks us to do more than simply to put nature and culture together, to put the endogenous, which are the fetal conditions, 
and the exogenous, which are the lifestyle aspects of obesity side by side. I think what material feminism is challenging us to do, or asking us to do, is to subject the entanglement of nature and culture to anthropological scrutiny. To think of them not as different concepts, but rather as an internal ingredient in which difference can dwell within, rather than between. So like a Russian doll or chimera, Parker's hypothesis entails the mutual constitution of different bodies and persons. Early nutritional environments are part of a dynamic bodily process in which nature and culture unfold upon each other. And this, this is not the simple you are what you eat formula. So a lot of the, the press around Barker's hypothesis and epigenetics you know, likes to take this, this formula of you are what you eat, you are what you know, your mother ate, your grandmother and so forth. So this isn't the idea that, that, that a pregnant mother nourishes her child with the food she eats, but how molecules in food affect the very systems that metabolise food. So for example, Lander Ecker, and I must acknowledge Hannah Lander Ecker's work because it's been really pivotal in, in pushing my thinking around obesity. She states that food intake might influence production of proteins such as growth factors that regulate, and I quote, how much cells divide during development and determine the size of an organ. So biology is thus highly relational and constantly changing and comprises of molecules that are in relation to one another. And I quote, within long chains or nets of causality across time and space that reach in and through the body. So Landa Ecker notes in her analysis of nutritional epigenetics that Barker's hypothesis and molecular mechanisms are concerned with, and I quote, things outside, how things outside the body are transformed into the biology of the body. And she, su she suggests a mechanism by which the wars and fam famines and abundant harvests of one generation can affect the metabolic systems of another. This is what she calls a molecular politics of eating, in which food enters pregnant women's bodies and in a sense never leaves it, because the memory of the outside environment ingested by a food is imprinted in the cellular level of the DNA of the fetuses. Epigenetic transmission of, ob of obesity and I quote Landecker here again, is being put forward as a model for how social things, food in particular, enter women's bodies, are digested, and in shaping metabolism, become part of the body in time. Not by building bones and tissues, but by leaving an imprint on a dynamic bodily process. How critical fat, fat scholars, fat study scholars, can argue that biology fixes bodies, which is one of their central um, platforms in the arguments is contrary to ways in which bodies are constantly in flow and movement even through time and space. Come to a conclusion. McCurvey states that both Butler, uh, Judith Butler and Bruno Latour have specifically acknowledged that one of the most press pressing issues in political analysis today is the question of critique. How to engage others more generously through interconnection how to avoid the more murderous manoeuvres of dialectical reasoning that negate another's position as wrong in order to affirm our own position as right, as the one and only position. In 2004, Latour stated quite famously, and I quote, critique as a repertoire is over. It has run out of steam entirely. And now the whole question is, how can we be critical not by distance but by proximity? 
I would never want to abandon critique, and I don't think Latour is suggesting that we do either because it's an underpinning um, force of anthropology. But he's speaking about abandoning a particular theoretical critique. So a proximal critique, I suggest, can be achieved by making yourself at home in the very logic of your opponent's argument and showing how the direction of that argument can, can comprehend a very different set of implications. The strategy illustrates the inherent potential for open-ended and intermediating insinuations that inform all positions and trouble their definitive separation. The default position of obesity scepticism is untenable for me. So to take flight from biology would actually be to take flight from politics and ethical principles. Ethical practices emerge from material realities, and to ignore the materiality of bodies is to ignore the significant social injustices that accompany bodies, which is precisely the critique feminist and cultural studies scholars have been levelling at biologists for years. So rather than closing down debate, Barker's hypothesis opens up new ways of thinking about obesity that have clear resonance with material feminism and social justice principles. Barker's work provides a counterpoint to discourses that tend to individualise blame and responsibility for obesity. So some of the social constructionist critiques of Barker's work have done, done the classic social constructionist critique and said that he individualises blame without, I suggest, actually reading further. So representations of the placenta in Barker's work um, are seen as toxic wounds, whereas in fact, in the field of um, early origins, the placenta is described as, as actually very protective. It's not toxic, it's protective. So I'm pointing to the wider context of people's lives that occur across generations, the socioeconomic, political, gender, and environmentally driven impacts of feast and famine, war, and the global financial crisis, to, to name a few. People cannot be seemingly blamed for the circumstances in which they live, which are often beyond their control. And moreover, I argue that Barker's work is an example of how relational materialism matters. It pushes us to think theoretically how health and disease comes to be through, by and in relations, both material and discursive. Heckman suggests that those of us trained in postmodernism and post-structuralism have been so convinced that the world, and especially the social world, is a linguistic construction that discussions of the real, the real seem like heresy. But the social world is very real. There are bodies and matter and real consequences of this materiality. If critical fact scholars are to understand and change that social reality, we must bring the material back in. The value of critique in a new materialist approach to obesity is that it can retain both elements of material discursive without privileging either. So material feminism asks us to re-engage with biology and it points to the viscosity and ongoing mutual constitu constitution of nature and culture. And Barker's hypothesis provides a case study for these crucial interconversions of matter that tie society and biology together in specific circuits of exchange in which bodies are networks of interactions. And I just wanted to finish by a statement from Elizabeth Gross. He says that biological discourses are no more dangerous ideological bias or misleading than any other discourse and models. 
we ignore them only at the expense of our own disciplinary discourses and political norms, only at the expense of our own growth and self-transformations. And to finish, as Nick Crosley argues, it is possible for us to study both obesity, as it's probably taught by the critical fat scholars, and obesity. And I would agree that he suggests that it is desirable for us to do both. I'd just like to thank these people for their intellectual nourishment uh, in developing the ideas of this paper. Thank you very much.